This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and with me as he is every episode is my co-host and Trek FM's content manager, Will Wynn. Will, how you doing? I'm great. How are you, Norm? I'm pretty good, uh, except for probably the 48 ounces of coffee that I had previous to the show. Take that, Janeway. Um, okay. so He's pretty amped up. I can see you, like, sweating bullets through the screen. I'm... I'm, I'm 1.21 gigawatts, gigawatts of amped up. I mean, we may have to do a medical intervention. Flocks may have to come in, give you a sedative, because I'm not sure you're going to make it. It's very well possible that we're going to get kicked back into the decon chamber after the show. That's true. For some uh, for decon, decaffeination, if you will. There's that. There's that pause. <laughs> that pause. That will likes the joke. <laughs> But doesn't want to admit it. Okay. It's a decaffeination chamber. <laughs> I, di- I didn't want to say it. I thought it was too easy. And joining us again for another episode, back for a little bit more punishment, is our friend to the network and a patron and a contributor to the Babel Conference, our very own Mr. Ataz. Jeff Harlan. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing good. I passed a uh, silver car in a blue box on my way in, uh, parked uh, right next to the shuttle pod. So, uh, I guess uh, we have some other guests that are still in decon. Did the license plate say out of time? It was a barcode. I couldn't make it out. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, <laughs> folks, if you can tell by the hints that we're dropping here, we're going to be talking about the temporal Cold War, specifically the future guy. And since we have done the future guy a long time ago, earlier on in Warp 5 in episode 17, we're going back to the future guy. So let's get that 121 gigawatts of electricity going and let's get that whole temporal engine flowing. So talking about how we covered the temporal Cold War before on Warp 5, we had two episodes. As I mentioned before, Warp 5, episode 17, the future guy is Jacob. Christopher Jones and former host Kate Walsh talked about the future guy specifically. Uh, the temporal Cold War, it, its form, how it compared uh, to or how it started the whole process off. And then in Warp 5, episode 50, the Find Your Answers, the Find Your Ancestors app, very popular. They talked about a little bit more of the technology of uh, the 31st century, 
uh, what Daniel's used in order to track these temporal events and how that would affect his relationship with Archer and then obviously showing Archer this whole temporal observatory. And that was very interesting. So listeners to Warp 5, check those episodes out. They're fantastic and you'll learn a lot from them. But for this episode, we're going to be talking about the future guy as he relates to some of the points we'd like to expound on because now we're entering what we would like to label as extrapolation on season five and beyond, how the future guy would affect the events that would lead into the temporal Cold War as it affects the Romulan War. So let's talk about who the future guy is and where we have seen them for our new viewers, our new listeners that aren't as familiar with the future guy and where he will lead us. So he has been seen in five episodes and referenced in two episodes. And those episodes are Broken Bow, Cold Front, Shockwave, Part 1 and 2, The Expanse, referenced only in Carpenter Street, and then referenced only in Stormfront Part 1 and 2. So what did you guys think of the overall aspect of Future Guy, knowing that we were only really seeing him in this holographic energy form? And did he create that type of impact where you thought that he would be a major player if we got to see him more in future episodes? I think... I was struck by watching Broken Bow, the fact that it was front and center in the very first episode. Because I remember going back, I remember watching Broken Bow when Enterprise first debuted when I was in high school. And I remember revisiting it now in full um, when I first watched Enterprise in my f- comprehensive rewatch. And I had forgotten the fact that Future Guy had actually played an integral role from the get-go with Silic and the Sulaban, which we'll talk about later in the show. And I thought it, I thought it added a really interesting aspect. Obviously, for fans of the show, we kind of know where the, the storyline will go and how it's kind of wrapped up in season four. And I think that left in some fans kind of uh, a sense of they didn't really know where they were going and they kind of wrapped it up just to wrap it up. But for me, I think it could have worked if they had really committed to the endeavor. And I think that's so much of what was initially wrong not not wrong with enterprise but i think a lot of what fans didn't like enterprise is that it was really serving so many masters and they wanted a prequel but they did not want to commit too much to the prequel idea they wanted something in the future have a future aspect to it but they didn't want to commit so much to the future thing uh future aspect so there are episodes in which the future guy does pop up but then you, you forget in between those instances in those appearances in all of uh, season one all of season two you know, I found myself forgetting that, oh, there is an entire arc here. And all of a sudden it just pops up in an episode and then it's kind of quickly forgotten again. So for me, if only they had fully committed towards developing and, and tying it up in a, in a proper way, it would have been really great. I think what we got was kind of the worst of both worlds is that you had something that fans were pretty lukewarm to, towards. What do you think, Jeff? What do you think about the future guy and... and- at least in the, the the sparse moments that we saw him throughout the four seasons. I thought it was a really good concept. I mean, it tied it into the later shows by having something from the future that could affect the past because Star Trek has had time travel from the very beginning. I mean, there were three time travel episodes in the first season of the original. Um, 
but they just kind of drop the ball with it. And like uh, Will was saying, I mean, it's just you set this thing up, and then all of a sudden it's just gone, and you forget about it. And it could have been so much uh, more. It was pretty clear that they didn't uh, really plan out what they had in mind for the character. There was no real clear indication of who exactly he was and what his true motivations and goals were. So it seemed really random whenever he showed up, what uh, whatever was going on with his character. One week he'd be doing something with the Klingons, and then when he'd show up again later on, he'd be having the Enterprise get saved so that uh, they don't get blown up in a nebula. And it never really gave us any indication of why he's doing the things that he's doing. So later interviews uh, would indicate that they, as writers, uh, they had no idea what was going on with this character either, and I think it really showed. And it was uh, a real uh, detractor to the character. I mean, one of the things that is really difficult for consistency for a show is to make sure that this type of storyline is planned out from the very beginning to the very end. And obviously the way we feel about it, we like the idea and we would have liked to have seen more of the idea, but because I think that this was a more of a network influenced decision for the show, Rick Berman and Brandon Braga didn't really fully embrace it for the overall storyline. And since the show's cancellation in May of 2005 to now, there have been interviews here and there online in conventions, in magazines. On the Blu-rays. Where we are here. On Blu-ray, exactly, on the Blu-rays too. Which you are enjoying right now. I you? just got, actually just as a brief side <laughs> tangent, I just got the full Journey <laughs> Blu-ray set yesterday. Uh, it's The pictures are on the Babel conference. I had to cut myself off after like two hours of watching because it was like approaching midnight. I'm like, I can't wake up tomorrow and you know, be functional at work. But I was just watching all these interviews and it's so refreshing because so much time has passed since the, the cancellation of Enterprise. And I think with the new JJ verse, there's a sense of they can actually speak freely about what went wrong with Enterprise, what was good about it, but, but, but also what was lacking and kind of their, their real thoughts on it. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, they themselves are talking about. And it's so refreshing to see the producers and writers speak so frankly about it. I think they're even harder on themselves on it than uh, a lot of the fans are. Oh, well, yeah. Brandon Braga is for sure. I mean, he is merciless, actually, on himself. And I don't think that's all warranted. I know that he had made some missteps here and there. And I do think that not trying to fold in this whole temporal cold war the way that he wanted to really paid off and it shows because of that lack of consistency but rick berman stated in interviews throughout the course of this this period where enterprise was off the air per se that he didn't develop a backstory for future guy as a matter of fact there is a lot of speculation as to what future guy's identity really was and that's actually at the heart of what this show is about because when we were crafting this show we wanted to delve deeper into a major storytelling force that would have linked season four to five and then through to seven and possibly more if we were able to break that 
you know, that uh, that pattern of of a full seven seasons for these spinoff shows and the Romulan aspect of future guys identity was really attractive because it makes a lot of logical sense. Now, Jeff, you kind of came up with that because you said you were always convinced that it was a Romulan that was pulling the strings in the 31st century in one of these temporal powers. So when you saw Future Guy in Broken Bow, is that what you actually really felt like? This is a Romulan in the silhouetted form. I was pretty sure of that, yes. Um, the time that the show was set were like 10 years before the Romulan War breaks out. So it seemed obvious to me that they would be building up towards an eventual outbreak of this war and to have this shadowy figure pulling the strings, manipulating events in the background, it would be perfect for the Romulans because we saw them doing that all the time in other Star Trek series. And it would make sense that someone in the distant future, whatever time they're from, Daniel said that he was from the 28th century, but can we really trust anything that Daniel's actually said? We only have his word to take on that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it would make sense that it would be a Romulan or uh, going back and manipulating events and saying, uh, you know, do this for me and I'll give you this. And uh, it all would tie into the Romulan War. Things would uh, basically just build up little things here and there that would strengthen the position of the Romulan Empire by the time the war broke out in the hopes that maybe the Romulans would win this time. Well, let's take a look at this because we're talking about the 31st century here. So is it even possible that Romulus still exists? I mean, is there some type of other dynamic in play where they're trying to prevent Romulus from being destroyed, i.e. that we saw it in in Star Trek 09 when Spock caused Romulus to fall that first time? It's, it's really hard to try and project that far forward and believe that the Romulans that we know of the 2151 time would still be the same race, government, and structure of the 31st century. I mean, that's a really huge expanse to cross. Maybe the Romulans do have a stake in it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Romulus itself has survived up to that point. It doesn't necessarily mean that Romulus did, but maybe this individual is trying to make sure that Romulus survives into the future. You're saying he's Eric Bana, a.k.a. Nero? That's how it's all tied in. <laughs> that's all. It's, that's an all. He sur- he somehow survived the Narada, and that's actually him. Hashtag it's all connected. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, Send the us a check anytime. CBS Paramount. We can we can uh, smooth everything over. Century. At the 2009 Vegas Con, Manny Cotto and Brandon Braga said that Future Guy was probably going to be a Romulan, and would have tied into the Romulan War as a future Romulan trying to instigate things. And that's the way we know, that's what we know of Romulans historically throughout all of the Star Trek series. They're never really up front. They're never taking the lead. They're always probing in order to get the best advantage for themselves. So taking a look at what Future Guy is doing, he's not really capable of executing his full plan because he can't materialize he's only in this half energy form so he's influencing which is a very typical Romulan strategy to not really reveal themselves until the moment is right so 
it does seem that it is very Romulan-esque, his behavior, don't you think? Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, um, one thing that uh, I've said for a very long time is that I think that his goal is to destabilize the region. Um, this, you know, working uh, the Klingon factions against each other. Um, and uh, I, I think that uh, this would eventually um, have the effect of either strengthening the Romulans or as we saw, it ended up bringing all these other factions together and causing them to unite together, which ended up resulting in the coalition that fought against the Romulans and then led to the Federation. So it's almost like one of those predestination paradoxes. They have the, the intervention was necessary to create the Federation, although the intervention was ostensibly to break it up. Right. I mean, that would have been great. I mean, the fact that we're, we're talking through it right now just speaks to the fact that it could have been a really epic narrative glue that tied everything together. And, you know, the pieces are right there to be picked up, right? The Romulan aspect makes sense. And you had mentioned earlier, Norm, that they had mentioned it, Brandon Braga mentioned it possibly could have been Archer in the future. And to me personally, that idea makes no sense to me in reality compared to the alternative. And, I think that just speaks to the fact that it really wasn't fleshed out. And on the one hand, that flexibility can be good in terms of allowing you the autonomy and flexibility and nimbleness to create a better story. But at the same time, it could also be your Achilles heel because that flexibility could also turn out to be something that is very loosely structured and something that ultimately gets dropped because you don't have enough uh, of a structure to bring it all together. And this is, uh, I think, a case in point of a double-edged sword. Like, they kind of gave themselves some room with this to see how it developed, and they never really did anything with it. Well, I know that Manny Cotto came in as showrunner in season four, and he really had a lot of of broken eggshells to pick up and try and put the pieces back together again for a reasonably sensible season. And we didn't see Future Guy in season four at all. He was referenced in the, in the season opener in Stormfront Part 2. So... In trying to reintroduce him into season five, as we extrapolate what his role would be, I thought about it this way, and this would have been really interesting, to try and almost legitimize what happened at the end of These Are the Voyages. Imagine, if you will, the Archer speech, that famous speech that he gave in 2151 to create the foundation for the Coalition of Planets. And all of a sudden, it fades out into a crackling type of distortion. And then the future guy is watching that through some type of temporal observatory. And then he saw that the larger picture, his plan failed, and now he has to go into different parts of the time stream and start putting his agents in place. And that's where we can actually start following now the story of Erica Hernandez as she fits into the Romulan War. Because now she's going to be engaging these temporal agents that are part of Plan B, so to speak. And then maybe, maybe there's going to be an opportunity to see even more of these powers start dropping their agents and influences throughout the course of five, six, and seven. So I think that Manny was a smart enough showrunner to reach into that deep bag of Manny Cota's bag of tricks and fix what was going on with the inconsistency of what was happening with the show. Because again, the temporal Cold War didn't have a real good structure behind it, but I do believe that he was smart enough to try and create 
this really nice architecture to lead into the Romulan War. What do you think about that, Jeff? One of the things that I was thinking on that was that the time period is just rife for people to try to go back and manipulate events. I mean, this is the time when all the seeds were being planted for the future of the entire quadrant, probably even the entire galaxy if you go far enough into the future. So this is a time period where anyone down the line is going to want to go and try to mess with things if they want to try to change the course of history. Uh, this is just an incredibly important point in the timeline. And Archer telling Daniels that, you know, leave him alone and he doesn't want any more of this, it's not going to change anything. Uh, they're still going to keep coming, even if it's not Daniels. It might be somebody else in, next time. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, you don't have to use Daniels all the time. I mean, I'm not sure if the fans even really resonated with Daniels as an actor, but it would have been neat to have seen another influential character drop in and be a little bit more secretive. Maybe we finally would have gotten the identity of Chef. Who knows? But I don't know. Will, what do you think about that? What do you think about Manny Cotto having the ability to go in there and restructure the Temporal Cold War to really bring it home into the Romulan War in seasons five through seven. I agree. I think I'm of two minds of this. I think on the one hand, I think it's very clear from the get-go that he wanted to be done with this storyline. So I think that's the reason why Stormfront and the way it did. He just wanted to end, tie that loose end up completely and be able to do the types of stories that he and the rest of his team wanted to do. But if he had to, and if he felt inclined that Enterprise was going to be beyond season four i think at the time he he kind of saw that this is probably going to be it but if he had assurances down the road that you know there was going to be some continuation i think he he had the chops to be able to pull it together in a way that like you guys had mentioned would make you know would make a lot of sense and to go back to your comment about chef i mean that's the premise of hunt red october right the spy the soviet mole is the chef right that's right like baldwin's like it's the goddamn chef right and it's it was him the entire time and I mean, that would have been a kind of a fun moment to do, but that's exactly right, is that you see there was a missed opportunity with Daniels in terms of it was interesting that he was kind of the, the yeoman before there was a yeoman. He was serving Archer and the rest of his senior staff. That was really interesting. But how how much more revealing if it was someone that was closer to Archer or the crew that had a deeper inkling? I mean, later on, we see Malcolm Reed. We realize he's part of Section 31. Right. Could they have tied that in? What if Section 31 of that time period was aware of what's going on? That Section 31 of the future or whatever counterpart went back and told Section 31 of the 22nd century that there's a time war that you're in between, that you're in the middle of. So it's not just the 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 worries of the United Earth that you have to worry about. You have to worry about this federation that is going to be, you know, this this the savior of the quadrant, the, the preeminent power of the future and that your job right now is to protect this larger ideal, this larger concept, not just earth. And I think been really interesting if they had not treated it as such a siloed event, because you feel that when I watch these temporal cohort episodes, I really feel like, wow, that came out of nowhere. And then the info dump for so much of the episode. And then at the end of the episode, they're like, all right, I'll see you later. Right. Daniel's be like, I'll, I'll be seeing you. Right. And then we don't know he's going to pop up again. And for a lot of fans, I think it was very jarring to kind of see these elements pop up with no seeming direction. And when in reality, it could have so it was so easily been woven together in a much more coherent way. You know, that's an interesting point bringing up Section 31, because 
Section 31, by and large, has always been used as this really nice catch-all for trying to tie up loose ends. I mean, that's what Section 31 is kind of in the charter about. They're supposed to deal with powers that Starfleet can't deal out in the open. They're Obviously, they're a clandestine organization. They are, I mean, they're steeped in the lore of, like, you know, our modern CIA or any type of, like, covert organization. But I do think that it makes a lot of sense that Section 31 would or at least a branch, even a more a more covert branch inside Section 31 itself would be linked to pulling the strings. Like, like Luther Sloan and another Luther Sloan and another Luther Sloan of all different time periods kind of like working together inside the organization. I mean, I know everyone knows how cool Luther Sloan is because William Sadler played him and Bill Sadler is amazing. But it's it's not far beyond the reach of the imagination for the writers to use Section 31 as this Illuminati-esque through line through time. And it makes perfect sense. And who knows, maybe they're all working together. Maybe Section 31, the Tal Shiar, the Obsidian Order, they're all working together out in the 31st century or beyond and making sure that what we're seeing or what's happening in Archer's time frame is unfolding the way it should unfold. Because there was an old TV show a long time ago in the early 80s called Voyagers. And you're going to have to kind of, you're going to have to pay attention to this one. But Voyagers, the premise was that there was a time traveler who has to go and correct time. And I always thought this was a really interesting idea, but how does time become incorrect? How did Edison not invent the light bulb? You know, how did Lincoln not get assassinated? Because somebody out there was trying to change temporal events in order to reshape the future. Quantum Leap did the exact same thing with the Evil Leaper premise. So there was so much opportunity to have these organizations make sure that their histories unfolded the way they needed to. Because not only does it protect who they are as a species, but it also protects their entire their entire civilization and how it unfolds. And sometimes you can't mess with that. In Doctor Who, they say that there are points in time that just can't be changed. They are fixed histories. And even the Federation would be like, you know what? This has to happen to Romulus in order for the rest of the universe to shape itself around it. Say like what happened in Generations. Viridian 3 wasn't supposed to happen. That's why they were able to go back and change it because they have to put the timeline back in order. But if Viridian 3 happened... And then the planet was destroyed, the D was destroyed. Everything that happened that related to the Enterprise D would have changed. But you can't have that happen. So maybe that's what this temporal Cold War is. Maybe it's all of our organizations trying to protect the universe from somebody else that we've never even heard of. What do you think about Is that too far-fetched? I don't think it's too far-fetched at all because... The series itself alludes to it, but it only alludes to it. They allude to the temporal cords, right? Daniel says there's an agreement. We're trying to enforce this this ceasefire almost, if you will, and that Vosk and Future Guy and these other rogue elements are breaking out and they're violating these accords. So they're alluding to the fact that there was an agreement. There was a treaty, if you will, and we never get to see what that fleshed out treaty is. We don't know who we don't know who the players are or the the factions involved. But I mean what you're saying could have easily, easily been been 
fit in. And I don't know if the writers themselves had thought of it. They just didn't get around to it. But what you said makes sense. And it would make sense that in the future, the equivalent intelligence agencies or organizations would get together and realize that there are shared commonalities. There, 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 there are vector points or points in which there shouldn't be a deviation. Otherwise, everyone is effective. Uh, everyone is affected negatively. And, it, and it's in everyone's self-interest to make sure that events happen, these crucial events happen the way they're supposed to happen. And, you know, I, you know, I hate to belabor the point, but again, it just shows that even this conversation that we're having, that we're fleshing it out in a way that the series never did, but it was right there for the taking. What do you think about that, Jeff? Do you think that was possible? Yeah. Um, one of the things I've noticed is that uh, um, every time the time travel came up at all, they just kind of seemed to drop the ball on it. They kind of dip their toes in the water, but not really go and get completely over their heads into the time travel aspects of it. And I think part of it, they might have been a little scared of doing time travel episodes because sometimes there's a lot of uh, negative fan reaction to them uh, at times if they're not do done right. Um, there's There can be a lot of blowback. People get too confused from uh, some of the story elements. And it can be really hard to write a time travel story that can still make sense to a casual viewer. And writing something that's as complex as factions from the distant future trying to influence events in the past, that could be just ungodly complicated to write for. And I can completely understand why they would shy away from it. But at the same time, if they're going to include it, they really need to just kind of go for it at the same time. Um, they, uh, um, and this is, uh, again, we're talking about, you know, 15 years uh, hindsight going back and looking at it. Uh, we also have more time to think about it than some of the writers in the writer's room. They, they uh, um, really just had maybe a few days to put some of these scripts to paper. And so a lot of things might've slipped by them or didn't get fleshed out because they just ran out of time. No, that's a fair point. I mean, we can't, we can't put it all on, on the fact that they didn't have the proper structure. They were, it always seemed like, and, and will you'll see this in the Blu-rays. And I know some of the people that have the Blu-rays have seen the interviews with like Mike Sussman and Brannon and some of the other writers and they were like <laughs> we were literally turning out scripts like 48 hours prior uh to when they had to shoot even less sometimes because uh the um the structure just didn't hold up or they took a look at the entire seasonal arc and said no they, they threw out half the scripts and you're gonna have to like write all over again I mean Frank Darabont did that to his entire writing crew after the first season of The Walking Dead he said you're all fired and then that didn't work and they fired him. So I'm surprised that that got back on track, let alone, you know, just having a handful of writers in Star Trek Enterprise, not really having that structure of where to go. So again, this all goes back to having something that the network influenced, quote unquote, influenced on the writers and they didn't really appreciate what was capable of a storyline like that. But let's get back to what Future Guy was doing specifically and why it makes sense to us that this would have been a Romulan influence rather than anything else. Jeff, you mentioned in one of the notes that you felt a Romulan 
goal was to destabilize the region and strengthen the position of the Romulan Empire regarding Duras. Can you explain that a little bit more and why you put this in the notes because you felt very strongly that this is the Romulan strategy of how to precipitate the war for the future seasons? Well, in addition to setting up everything for the Romulan War, also we've in season two, Archer meets Duras of the the house of the same name, and uh, and that was in in judgment. Yes, in judgment. Right. And mm-hmm. I remember your uh, previous episode. You guys were talking about it, and it just kind of jumps in on uh, the trial after Archer's been captured, and you had no idea how Archer had been captured in the first place. Maybe Future Guy had something to do with that. Um, uh, but uh, the it, the original plan had gone through in the first episode. Future Guy was trying to get all of these Klingon houses to fight against each other. And this probably would have left the House of Duras in ruins from all the fighting, which would have opened them up to Romulan influence centuries later when Lursa and Bator and the rest of them teamed up with the Romulans. The plot was exposed by Archer, but this later brought him into contact with Duras and achieved the same end. And that's where I was thinking that uh, that all of this ties together again, how Duras and Archer coming together. Duras' family is disgraced because of the contact with Archer, which then leads to the eventual contact with the Romulans. And the later Duras uh, betrays Kittimer to the Romulans. Uh, to curry their favor, the and then Duras's son tries to ascend to the chancellorship, fails. Duras's daughters try to do the same thing with Duras's illegitimate son, um, and all of this comes to a head with the Romulans pulling the strings of the Duras family and gaining power over the uh, Klingon Empire. And that's another reason why I think that this future guy was a Romulan agent or at the very least affiliated with the Romulans because everything he was doing with the Klingons would set things up in motion so that the Klingon Empire would be open to Romulan influence down the line. And this is actually not specifically written as such in terms of the future guy storyline. This is just where you see it logically unfolding from the events that we actually see from Enterprise to the next generation, because the House of Duras, Lursa, and Bator, this is what you're talking about, yes. right, Jeff? Yeah. So it's funny because the seeds are there, even if they weren't crafted as such specifically. I mean, Will, you've, you've, uh, you've watched The Next Generation. I know you said that you grew up with it as a fan. Did you see the Romulan strategy kind of at play when you were watching this, especially with that the, the power struggle, the sins of the father, the house of Duras, Lursen, Bator? Yeah, I, I do. I do see that. And it, it's also quintessentially Romulan in the sense that it's it's almost too complicated by half or it's almost too cute by half. I, I understand the logical narrative. Like if we create discord, we create... Um, disagreement and we create enough chaos we can leverage that into a thor uh to influence later on i understand that through line but at the same time you almost ask yourself if that's the if that's the actual end goal there's got to be an easier way to get to that point and i feel like that is so quintessentially romulan is like they try to think of it the most complicated convoluted way to get somewhere and it always ends up biting them in the butt because 
they'll always they'll always find a way somehow to mess it up or, or our heroes our protagonists will always find a way to subvert them and i think this you know jeff's theory actually makes a lot of sense because it's it makes a lot of sense because it's almost needlessly complicated that it's it's so it's like playing chess but two <laughs> or three levels beyond what is necessary right and that goes all the way back to next generation it goes all the way back to um things we've seen before but it it it, it makes sense because it 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 at least answers why um Broken Bow was set up the way it was, right? Why did Future Guy even care about fomenting civil war in the Klingon Empire to begin with, right? Because that was never really revisited again. And you see a lot of these ad hoc scenarios that happen, but you don't see what is the logic or the end goal down the road. And you can only, you're only left with uh, supposition to kind of fill in the blanks because later on, there was that instant with Silic trying to frame the Enterprise for the destruction of a planet in order to mothball the Enterprise uh, and Starfleet's mission um, for good. And you could kind of understand where the logical implications were that, what the logical implications of that would be. But at the same time, you're like, was is that your only goal? How is it tied to your earlier goals? How is it tied to fomenting chaos in the Klingon Empire? Or is it just these random events that are trying to create problems for Archer? But is there anything tying it in to anything larger? That's kind of my complaint with it. So as Spock said to Kirk in The Wrath of Khan, in terms of this chess game the events that are happening in 2151 aren't really easily seen as a Romulan endgame because our patterns indicate two-dimensional thinking. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, I, if if the normal plane of, of st- strategy is, is three dimensions, I feel like Romulans are playing like nine dimensions and they probably don't even need those three, those three dimensions. They could play like six dimensions. It would still be fine, but it's almost it's almost too convoluted for its own good. And I think... That's what makes the Romulans the Romulans, right? I think a lot of a lot of fans kind of t- t- take those touchstones and try to connect it to to something that was really needing some some narrative glue to kind of tie it all together. You know, I had a really far out idea when we were thinking about this, and because we like extrapolating and and, and posing the questions of what if, I was thinking about when fans of Enterprise, well fans of Enterprise or critics of Enterprise, when they talk about why didn't we see this race after? How come we've never heard about them after? Why didn't they appear in the original series or in the next generation or so on and so forth? And I thought that it would have been an interesting reasoning behind that they for somehow erased from time at the end of this temporal Cold War as it resolves in, say, season seven. What if the Suliban, the Zindi, were foot soldiers in this time in this temporal war? And as Archer resets the timeline or makes peace through all of these different accords, what if because they were so saturated and influenced it the war in such a way where they were just like, you know what? As time repaired itself and as they came to this conclusion that this timeline needs to be established and healed 
all of the elements that were involved in those scars of this temporal war were just eliminated. And now you have an answer for why don't the Zindi appear in the history books? Why don't the Suleiman appear in the history books? Because they never existed as the temporal war resolved and reset time to where it needed to be. And then I went one step further, and you guys are going to have to forgive me, but I have to indulge in this fantasy. What if Phlox was future guy? Because he planted himself <laughs> like boom, right? You guys can't see he this, planted- but literally my head is exploding. I'm making the gesture. My head is exploding. Because think about it this way. He positioned himself exactly where he needed to be to let the Klingon Civil War try to be influenced by what happened in Broken Bow. Why didn't Archer take the human doctor that should have been on the Enterprise? And he keeps making sure that Archer continues the mission. We see him all the time as his confidant and as his, his medical doctor to make sure that he always is capable of fulfilling what needs to be done the next, at the next you know, turn of the mission. But you never hear about the Denobulans past this era. And if Phlox created all of these major medical miracles that happened throughout the course of these four years, why has that never been logged into Starfleet Medical? Ever. You never see anyone reference any of his research ever. Now I know we can write that away because this happened after all these other series happened. But it's not implausible to think that. I know that you guys want to answer this because <laughs> you guys are like, mm, I don't know about that, Norm. Go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I think that is such an elegant solution. I mean, I'll have to think about the the flocks question for a little bit more, but I think what you're saying about the Zindi and the Suleban being foot soldiers and it all being erased makes so much sense because the the Zindi arc itself, the sphere builders, they were in a war with the Federation in the future, right? That Daniels was fighting right. the war with the sphere builders in the future at Azadi Prime with Enterprise J. So it is related, right? The Zindi are in a sense related to temporal cold war. And I think the fact that that in and of itself wasn't actually tied off is another example of a missed opportunity because what you're saying, Norm, is a perfect and elegant solution to tying all those elements together. And it would have really, the only way that it could have happened was really if they had committed to the idea that this was going to play a a pivotal foundational role as opposed to the tangent that it was, that it was going to be an integral role from point A to point Z when the series ended, that it was going to tie in all together. And I think if the series had continued on, they possibly had the opportunity to do that. It's they, It was there for them to be able to finagle it. But I think because it was just the final season, they're just like, I just want this to be over with, done with, and now we can just kind of do what we want to do. But what you're saying makes perfect sense. We never see the Zindi again. We never see the Suleban again. But you're right. The timeline repairs itself. Star Trek is really good at doing these types of stories, right? And how great it would have been, and it would be a great touchstone turning back to Zephram Cochran and however you feel about regeneration. But there's that great scene in regeneration where Zephram Cochran knows about the Borg in the future, but he's kind of holding himself back. And everyone you know, thinks he's kind of crazy. How great would it have been if Archer is the only one, the first president of the Federation, and he's the only one that actually remembers what actually happened. He, he's the only one that remembers the Zindi, the Suleban. But because 
that final scene of Daniels, whoever in the future says, you are such a crucial and pivotal figure in history that you're going to have to keep this secret to yourself. That what this, you know, you're part of something bigger, this legacy that you have. And part of this legacy is for you to play your role and your role is to play the first Federation president and to keep all this to yourself. And I think that would have been such a great, you know, exclamation point to this series because it would tie back to the very first episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Jeff? I don't know about uh, Flox being future guy, but uh, <laughs> um, I oh, could see the rest man. of the, the, the argument here. Flox, on the other hand, I could see him as being another temporal agent that's working counter to future guy, however. Oh, sure. No, yeah. Um, yep. Because mm -hmm. everything he's doing is to help Archer's mission and to ensure that the Federation gets started. And I could see him being affiliated with a faction, say, the similar faction as Daniel's, maybe from another time period. Um, and he would be influencing events just as much, um, if not more, um, just by his presence and his advice at key points. Um, and the the Zindi and the Suliban, um, we never hear about them again. Well, the Suliban, they were almost completely wiped out to begin with. They didn't have a home world. They were nomadic. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of them, even in the 22nd century. So that's a good point. Yeah. Um, that yeah. could be an explanation for why we never hear about them. They just they uh, they just kind of faded away to the died uh, off of the um, species to, yeah. the, to the sands of time. Um, the Zindi, um, similar problem. They didn't really have a home world either. But um, once they were mentioned, uh, we're starting to see more references to them in later um, Star Trek incarnations, um, especially in the novels. But uh, um, that's not, uh, that doesn't really help us on uh, the, the original series. Um, but the, uh, um, the, the, the original series also focused more on just on the enterprise. And that was almost completely a human crew. So it's also understandable that we didn't really see very many other species there either because we only saw humans, a few Vulcans, some Andorians, the occasional Tellarites, and not much else beyond Klingons and Romulans. No, that's true. And it's just one of those things where we as fans, we always think about why in Enterprise did they create all of these different races and species and they're introducing all of these new elements when in fact you had all of these preset elements from the original series and then even referenced into Next Generation that they could have used to just flush out the backstories, like the Tellarites, for example, because the Tellarites, you know, they're they're one of the four major founding races of the Federation, yet we never see them utilized to their fullest potential in Enterprise and not even really in the original series, even though we know what role they had to play in the Coalition of Planets. So, it's even possible that we could have used them in t as some type of anchor in this temporal Cold War because it would have given them at least a little bit more sustenance, uh, I'm sorry, substance to um, to be part uh, of this richer tapestry of the storytelling. So Was that a pig joke? Part <laughs> that was a bacon joke. <laughs> that was a bacon joke. It's six and one half dozen of the other, really. You can always play this what-if game because, yes, we've had the last 10 years to really think about it and let it marinate. And some of it makes sense and some of it could have been done. But 
unfortunately, we didn't get to that part. And just to take that extrapolation even further, one of the last points I want to bring up is that in, in 2012, in November 2012, Brennan Braga said on his Twitter account, as I state this from Memory Alpha, that he wanted to reveal in the fifth season the future guy's identity to be Jonathan Archer, trying to correct history and repair a corrupt future by influencing his younger self. Now, for me, that has to be flawlessly written in order for that to work. And very few writers, I think, out there have the capability of doing that without the support system of a fully fleshed out narrative from season one. So in order to do what Brandon was suggesting, you really are risking the greatest trope of time travel there is, and that is going back to fix your mistake. And Star Trek is better than that, I think, when it comes to temporal mechanics. I mean, we've seen that just throughout Doctor Who. I mean, that's what the Doctor does. And we've seen that almost in every other type of temporal or time travel story there is because that's what people would want to do that, use time travel for. They want to create that. I mean, Back to the Future, which is one of the reasons why I chose the title of the show, Back to the Future Guy, is because Marty McFly in two and three was trying to correct the mistake of losing the almanac and then Biff changing history for his making. I mean, that's, I don't think that any other movie does it as good or movies do it as good as two and three. I mean, that's just, that was it. That's why Back to the Future was so great. So when you do something like this, people that are familiar with that kind of time travel storytelling would be like, well, that's tired and played out. So I just don't think that would work. What do you guys think? Oh yeah, I agree. I think it doesn't, especially on its face, it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So if he's really from the 31st century, so is this Archer, did he live that long? Is it a is it a version of him that got transported in the 31st century? Is it him 100 years in the future at best going back using 31st century technology? It, it doesn't make sense. And then on another level, it doesn't ring true because I don't know if Jonathan Archer as a character as the captain that we know would be doing this type of, of temporal uh, intervention. It, it seems too extreme to me. It seems so he would have to be part of, he would have to be forced into such an extraordinary circumstance as we saw in damages or as, as we saw in other extreme episodes from to kind of take these desperate measures. And for me intervening in such a way, changing time is such a desperate measure to me that I just feel that doesn't ring true per se. And you're exactly right, Norm. It would require such deaf writing that why would you even, you know, force yourself to be able to have this, you know, near flawless piece of writing in order to justify something that doesn't really need to exist in the first place. So for me, and it, it, it doesn't ring true because of another point you bring up. It is tired out. It is tired and it is played out because it's something that you expect in a time travel story that the person that you're talking to is your relative, your son. It was in um, an episode of Next Generation, right? It, you know, it's future Alexander coming back to talk to young Alexander, right? It It's something that the audience can anticipate. And I think for me, I know... Jeffrey thought that it was a Romulan when he saw a future guy. But when I first saw a future guy, I saw clear human aspects to him. The way he was talking, 
and all this other stuff. So in my back of my mind, I was suspecting perhaps not future Archer, but someone from the future that was a human. And for it to actually be Archer would have just been such a disappointing reveal, at least in my opinion. Yeah, it just makes no sense to me at all to have it be Archer. Um, the story with Future Guy at this point, they're at complete odds. Um, everything that Future Guy has done would have no uh, way of making Archer make better decisions than what I can see. Um, instigating problems with the Klingons before Archer has even met the Klingons just so that he can go and offend the Klingons even more just seems counterintuitive. Uh, setting things up so that the Enterprise mission almost gets mothballed after its first year ends. Also, how does that help his younger self? It, it just makes no sense to have it be Archer at all. Um, but to have it, like Will was saying, have it be some other future human, that could work too. Have it be someone disenfranchised with the Federation who wants to prevent it from being formed or someone who wants to um, cause the Romulans to win the war or to cause the Klingon Empire to implode before first contact with the humans happens. Could be anybody with any other motivation but Archer just has it makes no sense at all to me to have him be future guy. You know, you bring up a really interesting point, and this is something that's going to be a little unscripted here, because I think I was thinking about this when I was doing my notes, and I agree that there's the potential of the future guy being uh, a disenfranchised leader of the future Federation, or whatever the Federation turns out to be, because I read the fan forums, and sometimes the fans put a lot of the onus on the Federation regarding diplomacy, how they are little, they are trending to be a little totalitarian in Voyager's time, how everything has to fall within the regulations of the Federation and the way the Federation wants things to be because the Federation has, they have the reach, you know, they have their Starfleet and they have an incredible network of resources. And there are times when you hear that, well, you either join the Federation or we'll go somewhere else to find your technology, your resources, your dilithium crystals. It'd be nice if you joined us, but we can go somewhere else and they can be part of our Federation and we'll just kind of leave you to your own resources. So I've always heard here and there that the Federation is trending towards this um, this kind of architecture that can't sustain itself. you know. And what if this person is the president of that federation at that time and say, you know what, where did we go wrong? Or was there something in the time stream that prevented us from planting a pure seed of the coalition? So I like exploring that opportunity because there is going to be a point in time in any governmental system where it becomes a parody of itself and it is only really going through the motions of what has been set before and not really understanding the responsibility of what it has and the power that it wields. So what do you think about that potential? What do you think if the United Federation of Planets, even if it's called that in the 31st century, is this giant totalitarian power that all of these smaller races now, maybe the Romulans, maybe the Klingons, 
We're like, you know what? This isn't what it was supposed to be. And your power is unchecked now. So we have to find ways in this temporal accord or this, in this temporal war to be part of this smaller network of, if you will, the rebellion, a rebellion against the Federation and say, you know what? We need to change this. We need to put the Federation back on course because the Federation actually did stand for something greater than what it is now. Now it is just obscene. What do you think about that? That makes a lot of sense because it ties into the darker themes that was beginning to be explored in later iterations of Trek. And it's a, a crucial part of, I think, Brian Singer's pitch for a new Star Trek series that wasn't picked up ultimately when they went in the direction of, of J.J. Uh, the pilot, I believe, was called Federation, and it was set far, far in the future. The idea was that the Federation had become exactly that. It had become a shadow of itself. It had become something that wasn't worth saving. It was a Federation that wasn't the Federation that we knew. And it was about the disintegration of, of what was ostensibly an empire. And that's a, also a, a time-honored storytelling narrative that has definitely been done before. But I think it would have been fresh in the universe of Star Trek because it's reflecting the the entity that we've respected and identified with for so long. And that's, that is very much a, a worthy alternative to Future Guy could have been. It could have been either the president of this this alternate federation where the federation becomes. It could have been a dissident or someone that foresaw this happening. They wanted to forestall it at the beginning when the federation was formed. I think it makes a lot of sense and it just opens up the opportunity for, I think what they really wanted to achieve with Enterprise was that the beginning meets the end and there's a connection between two. And they didn't quite stick that connection between the two they didn't really quick you know they didn't really stick that landing and connecting the end to the beginning but again that provides such a symmetry to it now some fans might say that's too neat of 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 a symmetry and that's a fair point that sometimes when you close circles or close loops or you you tie off certain ends it could be too neat and i think that's a discussion that's worth having um in, in in a separate conversation but i think just in terms of providing a better ending to what we got it also makes a lot of sense to me yeah i'm reminded of uh quark's conversation on deep space nine regarding the federation and root beer um how uh, it's uh bubbly and nice and sweet and cloying and after a while you start to like it um uh, just like the federation um but it's insidious yeah, it's insidious, <laughs> just like the Federation. Um, but I can I can see how uh, someone uh, could, you know, how something like that could happen. Uh, how over time the Federation does get a little too powerful and uh, corruption starts to take hold, and things like that could uh, very easily happen. Uh, and that's where uh, you need checks and. Uh, from some of those uh, powers. Uh, that's what Section 31 was intended to be. Deep Space Nine, we saw that it was starting to become something else, and it was becoming more like the Obsidian Order and the Tal Shiar, and it was becoming just as corrupt as the rest of uh, the Federation was starting to become. And perhaps down the line, it becomes so corrupt that maybe this faction for the temporal accords that Daniels works for is not actually the Federation, but 
these other governments that are opposing the Federation and the ones that are going around and meddling in history is actually this corrupted future Federation. And they're all in the past trying to fix it so that that does not happen. I think that we should send this idea to someone who, who you, who we trust as a novel writer, because I think that actually is such a great idea. The idea of, these secret organizations that we have learned to distrust over the course of these series because we know what they're capable of using their abilities in that time, in that 31st century to try and save this organization that was this paragon of governments and of policy and of agency. Because when you really think about it, when we watch Star Trek, for whatever reason we watch it, the through line is this the Federation, and where humanity achieves greatness, where Gene Roddenberry wants us to be or who we want to become, this better human race. But when they propose new movies or when they propose new series, they always want to go into the future because it's going to be cooler looking and you're going to have better special effects and you're going to have all of this really unknown stuff. But when you really think about it, you have to think of where the Federation is going to evolve or how it is going to evolve or what it is going to turn into on the weight of its own government, on the weight of its own processes. Because when you take a look at it, essentially it's going to become Rome. you know. And Rome became this giant bloated version of itself that ultimately couldn't sustain its own influence and weight. And I thought that would have been a really neat thing to start with and then go all the way back to the first flight story where you saw all of it happened, where you saw how this giant, mighty federation has become so corrupt and, and became this gross facsimile of itself. And then these agents went like, we have to change it. We have to go all the way back to the beginning. And then you see Archer sitting in a test pilot seat with A.G. Robinson at his side pushing warp one. Yeah. And Flocks is there because he's now this agent. <laughs> you really just want Flocks <laughs> just to be... Like a Section Thirty One agent from the future, don't you? <laughs> Flux would look good. There's in a no black re- jumpsuit. He would. He would actually he be. Did. He did. He would be in, scarily in the mirror good. Darkly. He wore that suit. You know. Um, so, but yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because just imagine what the other faction would would say or what the other faction would be motivated to do. I could easily see a scenario where the other faction says, "Maybe this Federation is a necessary evil." The, the the federation that we see in the future, the 31st century, the one that defeated the sphere builders, maybe we need an entity this big and this quote-unquote corrupt because it's the only thing that can stop the sphere builders or maybe that can only stop the Borg of the future, right? So there's one faction that says, yeah, maybe the federation is evil. Maybe the federation is corrupt, but I'd rather take the devil that I know as opposed to the devil that I don't know. There's a faction that is, is willing to accept that and it just brings up so many other so fascinating storylines because that cuts at the very heart of what humanity is, what humanity wants to be, and is humanity in the future, and by extension, the rest of the galaxy, worth saving if if power for the sake of power is your only goal, right? So I think that, I feel like we need to go right this season right now and just start filming it. With, like, claymation, like, we'll have our own action figures. We'll just do it on, like, stop motion. Maybe we can borrow and... Tommy Craft's sets. It's true. Oh, man, let's just let's shoot right now, guys. It's so good. Or, or the action figures, because that action figure short film 
Wasn't that was good? Awesome. That video I sent, was it so good? Yeah, you'll have to post that on the Babel conference again. So, um, Any final thoughts, gentlemen? Uh, is there anything that you would like to bring up before we uh, wrap this awesome show up? Because this show really was awesome. I loved all of the ideas that we brought to the show. And then I think we opened up a lot of possibilities. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I've... I think I've hit it before, but I'll just say it one more time is that, you know, the more and more I talk about the the concept of the temporal code war is actually so fascinating because, you know, it predates or at least is a parallel to a lot of what popular fiction is nowadays. First and foremost, Doctor Who. First and foremost, this tightly structured storyline that, of course, that we saw in Babylon 5, which I'm starting to see right now. Norm is a big fan, but, you know, Enterprise was at this this cusp of... It was episodic, but it wasn't episodic. And it was coexisting with shows that would end up being heavily serialized, that would end up having a much larger mythos, Lost, Battlestar Galactica, you name it, right? And especially now in the golden age of of cable TV, really um, well-thought-out storylines that are definitive and last, you know, three, four, five seasons. And Enterprise, I feel, is like right on the cusp of it wanted to be episodic, but it wanted to kind of dip its toe into doing these longer stories. And I think what we ended up getting was something that didn't please anyone. It didn't please the ones, the fans that wanted to see the Star Trek that they were familiar with. And it disappointed in terms of only hinting at the possibility, hinting at the potential of what a fully fleshed out uh, temporal cold work arc could have been. So I think, you know, as with anything, Enterprise was, was caught between these two rocks because it, it it was finding itself serving one too too many masters. Yeah, I'd agree with Will on that. Um, it could have been uh, a lot better, uh, or you know, so much more uh, than it, it turned out to be. But it was also a victim of its timing and the network interference that it had to deal with being on UPN uh, um, and the suits from the network saying we want this in there and then coming in later and saying no take that out we don't like it anymore um, and some of the, the other Star Trek series didn't really have to deal with that because they were produced in syndication and they could do whatever they wanted and they just sold it to the networks um, this and Voyager were the first ones that really had to deal with that uh, that as a problem and this was also right at the beginning of when shows were starting to really do serialized storylines and so that wasn't a thing yet, and episodic was still very much the way things were done, and that's what the uh, the executives were looking for. But it, at the same time, the writers are saying, well, we want to try to do this, and it was trying to blend both, and it just couldn't quite mesh up yet. So if it had been a couple of years later, maybe on a different network, things could have been so much different. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of fans are coming back to Enterprise because they actually have the opportunity now to see it as a whole as a as opposed to getting it on a weekly basis because when you were dealing with it at that time the narrative was really choppy and being a, a serialized show a weekly show is it just it it didn't allow the flow whatever flow it was able to establish to happen so I think that's why now fans can watch it on Netflix or on Hulu or however they want to stream it and really see the potential and the larger story that was forming. And one of the things that Will and I actually talk about a lot was or is, what are we going to talk about in the next episode of, of Warp 5? Because we only have four seasons to talk about. We don't have really any movies. We don't really have any of this 
the other resources that the other series have. But look at what we were able to mine out of one small idea for Enterprise with the Temporal Cold War and, and, and specifically for a future guy because that's the richness and the potential that the story actually had because you can take this and the writers could have gone with it in so many different ways and I think we are, we're actually able to touch on a few really key ideas especially how the 31st century would have related overall and how it would have tied it all together. Now, yes, yeah, sometimes we see it and we can tie those ends really cleanly. Uh, I don't think that it would have made for the best dramatic storytelling. But if you used the characters just right, and if you had somebody who really understood how to use foreshadowing and toss in all of the little Easter eggs that need to be there, then you could have tied in a little bit of the original series more, and you could have seen how the larger story would have played out even throughout Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and Voyager and the movies because all you need is a writer who's smart enough to drop in the right Easter eggs to tie it all in. Manny Cotto was doing it you know, quite successfully in season four. He was a little heavy-handed with it because he wanted to make his point really clear. But if you wanted to do it throughout the course of two seasons, three seasons, or however we were able to extend the, the, the longevity and the lifespan of Enterprise the right person would have been able to take that temporal story and really make something of it. Will, did you have something to yeah, say? Yeah, that actually brings up a really good point because Enterprise is this unique entity because it's chronologically in-universe, the the series that preceded everything else, but chronologically out-of-universe, it's a series that's produced uh, last, right? It's the, it's the final Star Trek series to date. So it has this ability, if it was used correctly to be able to be the both the alpha the omega both the point a and the point z if you will because it's starting everything off but it's also starting everything off with hindsight of everything else so if they had gone in with the ability to say we can use this to our advantage to tie these things in while also setting everything up i think the temporal cold war could have been the vehicle to do that right could it through that they could referenced everything to start up everything right you know it's kind of like that paradox everything comes full circle right so well i mean not to steal too much from what they would you know cover in literary treks but i think will and maybe jeff you feel the same way that's the success behind the destiny trilogy yeah i'd agree with that because um you know because you have you have a writer that was able to balance and respect the through line from Erica Hernandez in Forward. Now, I don't, I don't want to get into it because I don't want to spoil the books for anybody who hasn't you read it. you got to read it, Norm. You're, you're one of those Including people. myself. <laughs> yeah, no, but, and I'm not going to be a hypocrite about that. I said including myself, but I know enough that you're dealing with someone who respects the material and knows how to shape that timeline. So wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So again, when it's like any game, even in chess, if you have the advantage of going last, as Enterprise did, you have the ability to shape the next round because you can plot all of your strategic points and make sure that the strategy is moving in your favor. They could have sidestepped, they being the writers, they could have sidestepped a lot of angst and animosity from the fans if they took a look at their writing in a certain way and say that, you know what? We can stay unique in our own universe and in our own writing style 
at the same time, we can make sure that we are hitting all these pivot points to navigate the entire thread of the story all the way to Voyager and possibly even little beyond that with this temporal Cold War. So, again, the hindsight being 2020, we can we can talk about this until we're until we're, you know, puffed out like flocks and denobulin large in the head, you know, but it's it's because it was there. It wasn't so hard to invest yourself as a Star Trek fan to see that this is the way it could have happened. It was really easily there. And one last thing, Jeff, you kind of covered it when you said, I could have seen the entirety of this temporal Cold War unfold with the Klingons all the way to TNG because the writing was there. It lent itself right to that historical event and unfolding. And they didn't even do that on purpose. That was sheerly coincidental. Yeah, that, that was, a, they that was a through line through most of TNG was that uh, Klingon storyline and the Klingon Civil War and all this just dovetailed naturally right into it. And I was put the puzzle pieces together without even trying. Right. So, again, it, it was it was ready to unfold. And, and unfortunately, we didn't have the opportunity. But again, and it, it here at Warp 5... That's kind of like our epitaph, the potential and what we're if, basically right? season five writers in reality. I think we can call ourselves guys. I think we're basically kind of like writing what could have been. And I feel like I would only imagine that we're talking about is something that could have transpired in a writer's room, right? And when we're on on deadline or kind of coming up these storylines, like this is this is the stuff of what a season of TV is made of initially, right? So I think it's really neat that way. Absolutely. So, well, guys, it's been a lot of fun speculating about the temporal Cold War and the identity of future Guy. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. And I think it was a very anticlimactic thing for a lot of people because they were expecting me to to do you know my raw and ranting thing but instead i just was like oh that's depressing okay bye earl gray they've now shifted into the biff controlled 1985 who got a hold of the almanac in order to turn yesterday's enterprise the enterprise c is the delorean in this scenario the orb i'd like to see the borg assimilate Ferenginar. And then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see drones. Yeah, yeah. The the world's (laughs) strictest bank ever. (laughs) I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. (laughs) The nanites go into you. (laughs) Yes! To the journey! I... I don't want something with a little bit more teeth. For some okay. reason, like like starting a garden just doesn't scream mirror universe to me. <laughs> starting a garden doesn't have teeth. <laughs> the ready room. I hate to put it this way, but maybe in, in some strange, twisted logical sense, if Archer just kind of flew on by and didn't help the colonists, the Enterprise D would have never crash landed on Viridian. So it's not Troy's fault. It's Captain Archer's fault. Literary tricks. This is this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because I don't think the time period's supposed to be that long. Mm-hmm. But what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before? Well, I thought personally that it was really cool. The 602 Club. My two favorite scenes in the film are 
Cap saying language <laughs> and then the rest of what the jokes they go with that and then Cap moving the hammer just enough then Thor's face when he can't pick it up is priceless and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm so please check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about on Trek FM and in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond you will find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly, and it makes it easier for other listeners who are looking for Trek FM podcasts in iTunes, find our shows as they search through the library. And if you like what you hear on Warp 5 or on any of the Trek FM network shows, please leave us our star rating on iTunes and a review. That helps us out, and it helps us show our listeners the quality of our shows and how you feel about our shows. And we really do love bringing all of this great content to you. And a rating is great and a five-star reading is even greater. So, but I'm sure you already feel about that. At least I hope so. I think so. So it would be nice for you to give us a rating and a review there on iTunes. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website at Trek FM and grab the RSS link there as well. Now, this is important to us, and it's really an honor to talk about this next segment of the show. And I love talking about the Patreon program because this is how we, as an independent station and podcast provider, bring these shows to you. We need your help always as patrons and supporters of the network to help us through the Patreon program because this is how we fund the show. We have servers that we have to pay for. We have equipment that we have to pay for. And all of the funding helps provide all this content to you on a weekly and daily and a monthly basis. So a way you can do that is to visit patreon.com slash trekfm and join our team. On patreon.com slash trekfm, you can find our current goals and milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. This is akin to when you hear those, those spots on the radio where you're doing some public broadcasting or they're playing some classical music and they say, you know, we would like your funding if you'd like to hear us continue all this great programming for you. This is pretty much the same thing. So when you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, check out the perks that possibly include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats in our content development team, and more. This is how I got started with the network. I became a patron, Will became a patron, and Jeff became a patron. And we were, at one point in time, not very long ago, listeners to this network. And through the program and through some of the benefits that the program provided to us, we actually have all become part of this team on Warp 5, and now we're bringing content to you. That's so exciting. Isn't that exciting, guys? One, yeah, one so. could say it will... Yeah, exactly. But one could say it was, it was a long road getting from there to here, right, guys? <laughs> but our time is finally near. Actually, the, our time is here, so. Uh, this program brought to you but by no, it, Memory Alpha. Thank you. And no, so <laughs> Patreon is a great way to do that, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join our team. We hope you'll join our family here at Trek FM through Patreon. So, again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And as always, thank you to our associate producer for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. 
Thanks for all of your support through the network on the Babel Conference and on Patreon.com. And you can find Floyd if you want to chat up a little bit of Warp 5 with him on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can find us on trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message or a subspace signal as you prefer. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm, and the Babel Conference. Please type the Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at Trek FM and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, Jeffy, was great having you here again here in the conference room. And please tell everyone how they can get in touch with you on the internets and across subspace. Well, I post on the Babel conference all the time, pretty much every day. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, at Harlander. And I can also be found on my comic books, uh, bandwidthcomics.com. And uh, I, I post on there uh, um, every so often uh, whenever I get uh, a new issue finished. Good stuff, Jeff. And please check out his comic on Bandwidth Comics. It's awesome. The Protectorate. What issue are you at right now? I'm finishing up number five. And you are the writer and the artist. And pretty much you produce the whole thing in a nutshell, uh, Everything's right? start to finish. It's really great stuff, guys. So please check it out. And uh, thanks a lot, Jeff, for being on the show again. Now, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for the show is Audible.com. Now, if you're like me and you have a really busy schedule, Audible is that great service that allows you to find all the books that you want to read but you never have time for, but then you can download and listen to on your way to work, if you're on the train, if you're on a bus, however you get to work or however you get to your destination. Have that loaded on your phone or on your MP3 player. And you can make up that time and listen to that audiobook that you've always wanted to get to. So as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. I love Audible. Do you guys use Audible? Oh, yes. Because I love it. Yeah, I love it. It's a really good I mean, service. I drive. I have about a 20-minute drive. I know some people have some really long commutes. So please check that out because sometimes you always have that book on the side of your mantle or on the kitchen table. And it's like, ah, I'll never get to it. But you want to? This is the way to do it. So just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the Trek FM network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an eight-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student design science experiments into space, and you can make that happen. So please... Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and to get your seat on the mission. So, Will, if all of our fans would like to get in touch with you as our content manager for Trek FM, please let them know how to get across subspace to you. So you can always tweet me at at Will underscore Win. It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. And, of course, I'm always in the Babel Conference posting almost every day. Love to interact with the, the listeners and fans there. So that's a great place to, to drop me a line. Uh, you can also drop me a line at uh, my email at will.win at track.fm. So I would love to hear from you. Thanks, Will, so much. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network on Warp 5 or on the Babel Conference, our Facebook listeners page. I post there pretty much daily. 
And you can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and his Axonar project. And you can find me on the dedicated Axonar fan group page on Facebook. And finally, I'm a proud sponsor of Trek FM through Patreon. And I'm an executive producer for the network. So thanks, everyone, for listening. And join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. <laughs>